0: This is it. Um, This is the end of our time in the Minor Prophets. And so it's bittersweet. I think there's probably a time where as we were walking through it, all of us just wanted it to end because we couldn't handle much more um, of the truth of the destruction and the wrath of God. And thankfully, we, we who are hidden in Christ, we don't have to suffer that wrath, but we need to know who God is, that he's holy, that he's righteous, and that there is a wrath for those who will not worship Him, who will not fear Him. And so we've seen a lot of that, and that's been both for the people of God, right? Prophets to Judah, prophets to uh, Israel, to the city of Jerusalem, but it's also been to those outside of God's people, to Edom and to Nineveh and to the Assyrians. And so there's been this, this proclamation by these 12 minor prophets throughout all the known world, of who God is and what he has done. And that he deserves their worship, he deserves their love, he deserves their fear and their honor and their glory. And so the prophets continue to remind, particularly God's people, of the covenant relationship that they have with God. And so this morning... We get to remember that. We get to remember that Malachi, the last of these minor prophets, he, he has a role. He has a role as a prophet of God. And his role as the prophet is to declare the word of God, to speak the words of God. And how does he do it? He does it by the spirit of God. Micah 3.8 helps us understand the role of the prophet. It says, but as for me, I am filled with power, with the spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. The prophet brings a good news message, but it sounds like an indictment against the people of God. Because it is. It's it's pointing to their sin. It's pointing to their transgression so that they would repent and run back to a God who has loved them real well. The story of God is one of redemption and going and getting a people who didn't deserve to be gotten. And he goes and he gets them. We see it right from the beginning, that he goes and rescues his people out of Egypt. We see it even before that in the garden where God creates a people for himself and has a perfect plan that he would dwell with them and he would be their God and they would be his people. So these minor prophets, they are uh, God's covenant watchdogs. They're the ones that remind the people of who God is and who he's called them to be and how to walk in those ways. These prophets would go before the people, and and what we've seen is that's a scary thing. To go before either people that are your people and tell them, hey, you need to fix this, you need to correct this, we need to do this together, or to go before your enemies, that's even scarier, make that declaration, you are wrong. Nobody likes to be told that they're wrong. And yet one of the kindnesses of God is that he would continue to send prophet after prophet after prophet to tell us that we need a salvation that we cannot do for ourselves. And so God's been kind, giving us the call to faithful obedience to the law of God. Jeremiah seven twenty three says this, But this command I gave them, obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. And walk in all the way that I command you, that it may be well with you. This Old Testament relationship between God and his people is, is if you walk in his ways, you will receive the blessing of God. If you don't, you're going to be cursed. You're going to sit under transgression. You're going to sit under judgment. And so God calls them to walk in his ways so that they would receive his blessing, receive his mercy, be his people. It's a pronouncement of judgment and it's a call to repentance and return. And we, guess what? We're going to see the same thing in Malachi. We're going to see this call to examine how do we worship God. Do we worship God by checking boxes, by doing the things that we know we should do, or do we worship God because our hearts are full and we long to know him, to please him, to glorify him, to worship him with everything that we have. That's our, that's our call today, and the beauty of it is that we cannot do it ourselves And so we had this sweet little promise right at the end of the Old Testament that God is going to do this thing. He's going to change hearts. He's going to change our hearts so that we would love him, and he's going to show us his love for us. But to hear that, we need a a miracle today. We need the, the work of the Spirit that would give us ears to hear and eyes to see. So let's ask him for that. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you that we get to come and we have your word. Man, what a gift, God. For thousands of years, people would have to go and hear it read to them. And we have access to it every day, every hour, every minute. We get to know exactly who you are, who you've declared yourself to be. And, and you even tell us who we are in your word. And so, Lord, we get to, to see that too. And we get to worship you in spirit and in truth. But, Lord, if it's just words on a page... It won't change hearts. So we ask for the miracle of your spirit to make the word effective in our lives today. Some of us have hardened hearts this morning. And so we need you to soften our hearts. Some of us are broken hearted this morning and we need you to encourage us in your faithfulness. So Lord, would you do what only you can do both here and and throughout the world, Lord, as your gospel is being proclaimed, would you save? I pray that as, as we make this request, Lord, that you would bring to mind people that we know who need to hear the good news of the salvation of Jesus Christ and believe it. Lord, would you stir our hearts to pray for them? And would you do the miracle today? May today be the day of salvation. Lord, and for those of us that are saved, would you remind us again of the joy of our salvation, that you have done this great gospel work by sending your Son to worship rightly when I cannot worship rightly. And you've put his heart in me, Lord, and so I just thank you for that. I pray, Lord, for you to be made much of today. God, hide me behind your cross today. May we see Jesus. We ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. Uh, I don't know of a better beginning to anything than the way Malachi begins for us today. Now, sure, skip, skip verse one, alright? He's got to do a little bit of introduction, but verse two, Malachi just comes with this beautiful message that you and I need to hear right now. And it says, I have loved you, says the Lord. How does that that make you feel? It makes me feel incredible. That the God of the universe, the God that we've spoken about, who has power and strength and authority, who speaks things into being, His word to you and me today is, I have loved you. That's amazing. That's so powerful. And what we're going to see in Malachi is God is, is revealing himself to us again. Revealing himself to the people of Israel again. Now we need a little bit of context. Malachi is after the people, have come, the people of God have come back to Jerusalem from exile. And unlike Haggai and Zephaniah, or Zechariah, the, the temple has been rebuilt It's awesome. The house of God is resurrected, and it's standing, and they're worshiping their God in their nation, right? In their place, the people of God, in God's place, are worshiping their God. That's that's beautiful, and and God's words to them are, I have loved you. Now, what we're also going to see is that these people, while they've rebuilt the temple, their worship is half-hearted. And so this morning we want to look at what is heartfelt worship. What is a worship that would please God? Because that's, that's why we were created, is to please God. He made us for his pleasure. And what we have found is that when we're worshiping God, that's our greatest pleasure. That's our greatest satisfaction. To hear him say, I have loved you. And yet the people of God have become complacent, and they've begun to just do the things of God because they know that's what they're supposed to do. I'll be honest, as I'm reading Malachi, of of the 12 minor prophets, this one has been the most convicting. This one has reached into my heart and pointed out some areas where where Joel has just walked through the process and done the things that he knows he's supposed to do rather than doing them with a heartfelt worship of God. To worship God, though, we need to be reminded of who he is. We're going to jump through. So if you want to follow along, great. If you don't, that's okay because we've got the notes in the app and you can go back. And, And just like every other week that we've done this, you're not going to get all of Malachi this morning. You're just not. It's a shorter book, but we're not going to plumb the depths of it today. So you've got to go and you've got to read it yourself and you've got to say, Lord, would you open my eyes to what you want to say to me through Malachi? But I pray we see a couple of things today. I pray that we see God's truth and his judgment. Like, who is God? And in light of that, how has he judged us? So we see that in verse 2. I have loved you. God is love. God has created us for His pleasure and He has loved us. Verse 6 says that God is the Father and a King. As a son honors his father and a servant his master. If I am a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts, O priests who despise my name, but you have said how we despise your name. So God there is saying that He is, he is a Father and He is a Master, He is a Lord. What else do we see about who God is in Malachi? In Malachi 2.17, it begins, you have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have, I, have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? While, we see, while that's a question, we see in there a truth of who God is. God is a God of justice so the complaint that the people of God have is, is that they don't see His justice, or He's not just like they think justice should be executed. So we see that God is love. We see that God is a Father and a Master, a Lord. We see that God is just. And then finally in verse 6 of chapter 3, it says this, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. We see that God is faithful and unchanging. That's good news. We try to understand who God is, and even as we come to him, we bring our own ideas, right? We bring our own limitations, and we say, God, you're unchanging, but I don't even know what that is because I'm so changing. I'm so fickle. I'm so back and forth, but you say that you do not change. I want to know what that means, and I want to find hope there. This is the, the truths of who God is that we're going to look at. And, and with each of these truths, we have a complaint and an excuse of the people of God. And so that's what Malachi is. It's this conversation. It's really just one, one part of the conversation. Jesus speaks for, or God speaks for both sides. He tells them who he is, and then he tells them what they've said. But you say, how? And so we see this. And the beauty of it is it really speaks to us today. Because we have complaints. We have excuses. We have questions. I have loved you, verse 2. Jeremiah 31, 3 says, The Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. In that passage, we see both the love of God and the faithfulness and unchanging of God. And as we look at God as Father and Master, we see that in, in that passage, in chapter 1, God tells him what a, what a good Lord looks like and what the response of the people should be. So look at Malachi 1.11 with me. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations. Says the Lord of hosts. God is about his name. He's about his character. We have a hard time with that. We think that that makes him really self centered and kind of egotistical. But the reality is that we want a king who is powerful, who deserves to be feared, who is great. That's the king we want. And that's the king we have. And God tells us over and over that that's true. He tells us in in verse 11 that my name will be great among the nations. He says it twice. And then if you skip down to 14, he says it again. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. I think fear sometimes, especially coming out of Halloween, we have a bad idea of what fear is. But the reality is that fear is an, is an honor, a trepidation, a, a glory, a respect for something powerful. So when God's calling them and telling them that he will be feared among the nations, he's saying, I will be respected and honored and glory, glorified among all peoples. It's going to happen. We've looked at that several times over the last couple months, that that there is always this pointing by the prophets to what Jesus would do. But then there's also a pointing to a final final end, a final reality. When Jesus comes back again and he establishes the kingdom that he's promised, and we're actually going to see it, and we're actually going to experience it. Where he's going to vanquish all of the injustice. He's going to vanquish all of the hurt, all of the sin, all of the brokenness. And it's going to be perfect. Absolutely perfect. And we can't understand it because we we just don't have a mindset that can understand that. But we hope for it. We long for it. We want it. And what we see here is God telling us again, For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, My name will be feared among the nations. I think it's important that we make a, a quick contrast before we move into the, the heartless worship of the people to realize that, that they've got some, some things that they're doing that really point to uh, the sin in their lives. And one of them is that if God is a great king, then he deserves perfect sacrifice, he deserves right worship, and yet they're not giving it to him. The indictment of God against the people is that, hey, you're bringing me your lame animals. I've asked for a perfect sacrifice. You bring what's left over. You bring animals that are, that are sullied, animals that aren't perfect, that they're lame. Or I've asked for your best and you've given me the runt of the litter. But then he says, but you don't do that to your governors. Remember, they're, they're allowed to be back in Israel They're allowed to worship in Jerusalem, but they are still being governed by an outside kingdom. And so to those governors, to the the flesh governors, they give their best. And it says in Malachi 1, 8 and 9, when you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? When you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God, that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts. God is expressing his worthiness of our best. If God is love, if God is Father and he's a good master, if God is just and he's unchanging, he deserves our perfect devotion, our right worship. More so than any wicked government. More so than a puppet governor. And yet the people of God are giving their best to this governor. Because, listen, that, in reality, that's what's going to affect their lives right now. And they forget that that's a temporal thing. Can we bring this home a little bit? Do we, do we give God our second's? And give our first to people that we can uh, feel or see or actually be in relationship with. Do we give our job our best because we think, man, I have to give my job my best, otherwise I'm going to lose it, and then I'll give God whatever's left. Like I said, as I'm reading this, there's this conviction that's inside of me that says, man, I have put every so many other not every but so many other priorities. Over my priority of my Savior, my King. And I've given him just the very end of my day when I'm checking the box. And I'm barely, like I'm barely coherent. And I, and I ask, God, would you bless this day? Or maybe it's sometimes in the morning where I'm still barely coherent and I'm waking up and I, and I give him a quick prayer asking him that he would do something and then I just go and do my own thing all day. That's what the people of God are doing. They're checking boxes. They're they're continuing to sacrifice because they know, hey, I'm supposed to sacrifice. I'm supposed to give offering. I'm supposed to do these things. But they are not doing it with their whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. They're doing it out of routine. They're doing it out of obligation, not out of a worship to their God. How do we know this? Well, God points it out. 1 verse 2. He says, I have loved you. Beautiful beginning, right? But you say, how have you loved us? Listen. (laughs) The people of God should know how God has loved them, particularly this people. Many of them were born in exile and God has brought them back to, to their place to be with Him. I'm not saying that that it was, may have been awful in exile, but it, it was not their place. And God has brought them back. And that is, a, that is a story that's been told over and over and over for the people of God. And then they have the audacity <laughs> to ask God, but how have you loved us? How have you loved us? And then God declares very clearly, he has loved them by choosing them. How has God loved them? He has called them his people. Through no right standing of their own, through no righteousness of their own, he has purchased them and come and said, you are my people, even amongst brothers. And the the good news for us is he chose the one that was kind of a schemer, (laughs) the one that shouldn't have been chosen. God chose him and said, you are my people. Jacob have I loved. Esau have I hated. God has loved them. In chapter, or verse 6 of chapter 1, a son honors his father and a servant his master. At the end of it, it says, but you say, how have we despised your name? Like there's, there's question after question. God's declaring, hey, this is what you should do. And they, they have a rebuttal. They have an argument against it. But how have we done that? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying the Lord's table may be despised. See, it goes on and on. And that's why I want you to go back and I want you to read this. Because as you read the whole thing together, you you really get the feel of God saying something. And then Him pointing to His people. And they say, but but God, but we've done this thing. But we've given you offering. And He says, but it's been a polluted offering or we've given you a tithe, but it's been a partial tithe. Or we've, we've loved you faithfully, and he says, but you practice divorce. And so there's this, there's this judgment against the people of God over and over for the ways that they're living. The ways that they're living that do not honor God. Verse 12, but you profane it when you say the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit that is food may be despised. And 13, but you say what a weariness this is and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. What a weariness this is. This is tedious. This is mundane and it's not really producing anything. They're talking about the sacrifices that they need to have right relationship with God, and they're complaining that it's wearying, that it's boring, that it just feels like the same thing over and over. And it is. It's the same thing over and over. Some of these sacrifices and offerings are annual offerings and sacrifices. Some of them are uh, more often than that. Some of them are daily sacrifices, and it is, it's repeated over and over and over. And they're complaining about the weariness of it. No, the weariness of it is that they are being reunited to the God who has made the declaration that you, I will be your God and you will be my people. But sometimes we get weary of it too. Right? Sometimes it feels more like a chore to worship God than it does feel like something that I want to do with my whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so we sit under the same judgment that God has for His people 2,500 years ago. We are that same people. We are wearied by worshiping God. And I'm not just talking about going to church on Sundays or reading your Bible or um, praying, all the things that we kind of check checkmark as, as the ways that we worship God. I'm talking about Things like working hard. To honor your, now the Bible uses master often, but for us it could just be boss. I'm talking about being intentional in raising up your kids and pointing them to Jesus. Raising them in the fear of the Lord. I'm talking about loving your wife or your spouse in a way that is worshipful. We've got a great example of this because God's kind, um, like I, I rub Randy's feet, I, I take my, my wife's feet and I, I massage her feet and that's one of the ways that I show her that I love her and, and God's created me in a way that I love doing that, I love serving her in that way but sometimes I just do it because I know that that's what she's expecting me to do and so it's kind of a half-hearted thing and it's maybe just a couple seconds. Right, And then I feel like I've checked that box and I've appeased my wife and I've loved her well. Do you think that she feels loved in that moment? No. What's even worse is is sometimes I'll try to love her in ways that she doesn't like to be loved. And I think that I've loved her well. But God in His kindness has given us the way that He wants to be loved. The way that we get to do it with all of our heart, whole, whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. To obey Him and to walk in faithful obedience to Him. Like, it doesn't get any clearer than how God has laid out for us to live a life that would love Him and worship Him. Sometimes I have to guess with Randy. Like, I have to read her mind. We don't have that problem with God. He has given us His mind. And the good news, He doesn't even change. Like, that's what we want We want to know how to love someone well and we don't want them to change on us so we can continue doing that. Now, not because it gets routine, but because we know what they want. God has given us that in his word. He's called us to walk in perfect obedience to his law. The Israelites, they know how they're supposed to love their God. And yet they've done it by checking the boxes And one of the biggest indictments against uh, God's people in Malachi is towards the priests. Those who should know God best because they have His Word. Because they they can read the scrolls any time. They can come to Him and they can see who He is. You and I today, we are a royal priesthood. God has made us into that. We have access to His Word. We know who He is. And yet we spend so much of our time chasing after lesser loves lesser things and so God's judgment would be against us also listen if all of this is true we've got a problem we can't do this we can't love God with our whole heart soul mind and strength we tried and we failed over and over the people of Israel they have a problem yeah, they've practiced divorce and so they, they have this unfaithfulness in their hearts. Not just towards other people, but towards God. Remember the book of Hosea, is, it's all about our unfaithfulness to a faithful God. They, they offer lesser sacrifices. They give God just whatever's left rather than their best. And we do the same thing. They don't walk in a way, they don't work in a way that would honor God. And we do the same thing. So where's the good news then? Well, the good news is what we read at the very start. That God redeems a remnant out of the people of Israel. And He holds them. And He's faithful. And so if He's redeemed them, He's going to hold them. He's not going to change. And He's going to hold them Because he knows that one is coming who's going to walk perfect obedience and faithfulness to him. Go back to Malachi 3 with me. Before we get to 16, I want to read the beginning of chapter 3. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. And I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, those who trust alongside, against those who thrust alongside aside the sojourner, and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. God's going to send a messenger. What's beautiful is that so much of this language is picked up when we see Jesus in the Gospels. The one who goes to the sojourner, the one who goes to the widow and to the orphan, it's Jesus. We have this promise of the Lord sending the messenger and entering back into his temple We saw it in the the Gospel of Mark that Jesus goes into the temple and then He leaves the temple. This is the promise that we have that Jesus is going to come back. That the the, the Messiah is going to come and He's going to restore all things. And we see it in Jesus that He goes and He brings all of these who are cast out in. And He judges the ones who are insiders. Remember the Pharisees, the Sadducees, those who... The, the accusation is very similar to what we see in Malachi. They were whitewashed tombs. They were just doing the things that looked good on the outside, but they weren't worshiping God with their heart. But Jesus came. And what does he do? He gives us new hearts. Verse 16 of chapter 3, Those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. This idea of esteeming the name of the Lord, of fearing the name of the Lord, of honoring the name of the Lord. I don't see the word repentance written in this book, but I see it in the way that they would change. The way that they would go from not fearing the Lord to fearing the Lord. They would recognize their sin and they would say, God, you are worthy of better than I have given you and I want to give you everything that I have. And so the Lord is saving this remnant, this group of people that would speak to one another and fear the Lord. The promise in 17, they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. In the day when I make up my treasured possession and I will spare them and as a man spares his son who serves him. I love that. he's. They are my precious possession, and I will spare them as a son. How has he spared you and I as sons? Through the gospel. Because he sacrificed his son. Like That's the beauty of it. He, he saves you and I as sons by giving up his son. Jesus comes and he walks perfect obedience to the Father, perfect obedience heartfelt worship in all of life. We've seen it in the Gospels. We've seen how he lives and how he honors God. This is the requirement that God has always had for his people. From Deuteronomy 6, 4-9, through 9, he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall... Talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Listen, this, is, this was the requirement to be God's people, that they would live all of life in this way. I don't think they actually had blinders on I think this is more metaphorical, that, they, that everything that they saw, everything that they did, wherever they would go, in their households, there would be this desire to worship God and to honor Him with everything that they had. And so if that is the requirement, we need something outside of us to fulfill that requirement. We have the promise of changed hearts. Uh, this promise is... Echoed in Ezekiel, Ezekiel eleven nineteen and 20, it says, And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. You see, it can't just be this external obedience. Because it has to be this heartfelt obedience with, with a, a heart of flesh it means that you and I cannot perform this in our own works. It means that a miracle has to take place that takes this hard heart and exchanges it for a soft heart of flesh. And the, the Bible says that it only happens by the Spirit of God. So you and I cannot make this happen. As much as we desperately want to, as much as when we sit under the judgment of God, we want to fix ourselves, we cannot do it. How has God done it? He has sent His Spirit, He has sent His Son. He has done it. And what we see is this promise fulfilled in verse 6 of chapter 4 of Malachi. And He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the lamb with a decree of utter destruction. <clears throat> how has he turned the hearts of the children to the Father? We just said we, we can't do it, and often our hearts are not towards the Father. Often our hearts are towards our own selfish gain, our own lives, what, what has immediate effect on me, rather than what has an eternal perspective, what has value to God. So if that's true, then like how has... How is the Spirit doing this, changing our hearts? Well, he's done it by the obedience of one. The heart of the Father and the power of God are shown in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You want to know what Jesus' heart is? Read his words. I love John 15 through 17. It's, it's this beautiful uh, look into the heart of Christ. And he, he, how does he pray? He prays for his disciples and he prays that they would know God. One of the things he says in John seventeen twenty five 25-26, he says, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. How has he turned the hearts of the fathers to the children, to the, ch- the children to the father? He did that by sending his son. The perfect child walked perfect love for the father, even as the father loved the son perfectly. Remember when Jesus comes out of the water at his baptism and, and the, the voice opens up from heaven and says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Like that is, that's the pleasure of the father, a heart of the father for his son. And then we see the heart of the son for the father throughout all of the gospel. Okay, great. So one guy did it right. (laughs) Yeah, and that's all we need is that one guy to do it right. That one perfect God man to do it perfectly because today we have the promise that if we are in Christ, we have received His righteousness. The perfect obedience that He walked is now ours. Not just on our record, which it completely is, but we get to walk in those things today. We get to worship our God fully. Heartfelt worship. Out of gratitude for what Jesus has done. And because of the application of the spirit of Christ in us. We get to do that. We see it in Romans 3.21. It says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The prophets, Malachi, bearing witness to the righteousness of God that we need desperately. All of that has been manifested and made known, verse 22, the righteousness of God. How? Through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've seen that, right? As we read Malachi and as we said, oh, okay, we need to worship God in every facet of our lives with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Can we acknowledge that there, we have not done that? And as soon as we acknowledge that, we say that we are sinners in need of a Savior. If that's true, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Has this incredible conviction of sin in our lives. And that's good. It's good. But here's a tendency that we then have well, I just need to fix that. I need to love God better. I need to do a better job and and be intentional in the way that I pray and the way that I read. You can do those things and it will still never measure up to the requirement that's necessary for Him to be our God and for us to be His people because it requires perfect obedience. But what we can do is we're convicted of that sin. We can remember, but I have a, I have a God. I have Jesus who while I have not loved God with my, with my finances or while I have not loved God with my time and I've, I've sought to, to escape Jesus never sought to escape. Jesus sought to honor the Father even in the midst of dire persecution. In the midst of of them taking, of me and, and us rebellious people taking his life, he sought to honor the Father. And that's on my record. Because I am in Christ, that's for me. And what that does is it gives us the idea of the grace that we need, we've received because of Jesus. And so I can't do it. But now out of remembering that Jesus has done it for me, man, I want to I live a life of gratitude. A life that would worship God. A life that would make much of His Son and what He's done for me. And as I see brokenness, I can mourn it. And I, can't, I don't even have to expect this person that I'm walking with who is also a believer, to change because Jesus has paid the price for them too, and we can rejoice in that. Now the hope is that as we rejoice in that, we are changed and transformed and conformed into His image, that we actually worship rightly, that we don't bring our our second best or or maybe our, our leavings, but we would bring our very best to God. That we would honor him in our marriages, that we would honor him in our devotion to our children, and that they would honor him in their devotion to us, that we would go to the sojourner, to the widow, to the orphan, out of a love for Jesus, out of a love for our great Savior. Because what we don't want to do is take this and say, we just need to do better. Those priests, they needed to be better priests. No, they needed a, a perfect priest who would come and who would still be sitting at the right hand of the Father mediating for them because they would never get it right. And you and I would never get it right. Well, they just needed to be better husbands and wives and continue to, to work together. No, they needed a good, good Savior. And we have it. We have it. It's, it's pointed to by the prophet's And then we see these prophecies fulfilled. And the beauty is, we're going to take a one-off next week, but then in two weeks, we jump right into Advent. Man, all of these prophets pointed to one who would come, who would fulfill the law perfectly, who would be the, the peace that we need, who would be the sacrifice that we need. And Jesus came, and we get to celebrate it. In the midst of all this extra celebration, we get to celebrate the one true thing that is good news. And so I pray that today you don't take this and say, man, I, just, I, need to, I need to hear what God says through Malachi and change the way that I'm living. Yeah, I mean, hopefully, but I pray that it would be out of a recognition of what God has done. That He sent His Son. That, that He sent a, a Son who had a perfect heart of love for the Father. And He loved Him. And He gave Himself up for us at the cross. And so we would remember that, we would receive that. Maybe some of you need to hear that for the very first time today. Maybe you've taken every every message that you've heard as you've sat here and you've said, I just need to do better. No, you don't need to do better. You have a perfect God who has sent his perfect son as a sacrifice for you. You don't have to do better. You need to believe in the one who has done better. And then you need to rejoice. Like that, should, that should make this worship heartfelt. That should make our worship beautiful in all of life. Like when we're done, we should sing louder than we sang before because we've seen again who God is and we've been reminded. And then we should go out singing, going and being the church together. So I pray God would do that in us today. Amen? God, we thank you. we thank you that we could not do this thing and you have done it. You have worshipped perfectly with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. You have loved in the Son you have loved the Father and the Father has loved the Son and you've turned the heart's of the Father to the children, the children to the Father, Lord, and today we get to, as grafted in heirs of grace, we get to rejoice with that and we get to have our hearts turn to you because of the work of Christ. Lord, may we examine our lives and may we be honest about where we have given you polluted sacrifices, where we've given you things that are not worthy of a God whose name should be feared in all the nations. God, but even as as we receive that conviction, may we not believe the lies of the enemy that we have to do better, that we have to go out and try harder, but we would believe the truth of God's Word that we could not do it, and so you did it for us in the work of Jesus. May there be such gratitude in our hearts that you have done that that we would live lives of worship. That we wouldn't wait till heaven, but we would begin now to give you everything that you are due, everything that you are worthy of, all the glory and all the honor and all the praise. God, we ask that you would do this miracle in us today. We thank you that even as we begin, uh, as we take communion, Lord, that we would remember we could not do it, so Jesus came and did it for us. God, and you took our sin and our shame, but you've also imputed to us. You've put in us your righteousness so that we can walk in this same heartfelt, faith-filled obedience and worship to you. Lord, would you receive all the glory and all the honor and all the praise today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.